Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. Stuart Robinson, the director of the Charles Rennie Mackintosh Society, gives a personal view of the great Scottish architect and designer. Thanks very much. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, it's okay. I'm just going to give you a sort of an insight into Macintosh. It's a sort of personal view, uh, running from the early stages of his life through to the latter stages uh, when he spent time in France. Just to give you some background, the society that I, I'm the director of was founded in 1973. It's very much changed. Originally, it was a, a voice to ensure various Macintosh buildings didn't disappear in Glasgow and the like. Late 60s, Glasgow was tearing down buildings. Fortunately, we've saved all the Macintosh buildings. And in 1999, the Society bought Queen's Cross Church, and we run Queen's Cross Church, which is the only church designed by Macintosh to actually be built. Although Macintosh did designs for Liverpool Cathedral, we didn't win the competition. These are all the buildings that were involved in Glasgow. The Lighthouse, which was originally Glasgow Herald Building, Martyr School, Glasgow School of Arts, Macintosh Church, Rock Hill Church Hall, Daily Record Building, House for an Art Lover, The Hill House, Willow Tea Rooms, Scotland Street School, and the Macintosh House, which is part of the Hunterian Art Gallery of Glasgow University. And also there's a large collection within Kelvin Grove Art Gallery. How many people in the audience have been to Glasgow before? Quite a good anti-Macintosh buildings? Yes. Macintosh was born in 1868 in the head area of Glasgow. He was one of 11 children. He didn't really, he wasn't a healthy child. At a young age, his uh, father was quite involved and interested in uh, gardening. And we believe maybe at a young age, Macintosh got interested in plants and details from his father at that young age. Macintosh enrolled at the old Glasgow School of Art, which used to be in Argyll Street, and he joined John Hutchison Architectural Practice in 1884. They realised, I think, at an early stage, they could not hold on to him. He was winning gold medals at all the competitions he was entering. And when he completed his apprenticeship, he joined um, Honeyman and Kepi as an apprentice. And I think for the first two years, he didn't actually earn a salary. I think it was that, those days it was a, a privilege to work for a, a good practice. So he had actually no money for two years. So I can understand why he entered competitions. This is a drawing that Macintosh did of a public building, a public hall. And Macintosh won the Alexander Thompson Travelling Studentship. And he won £60 as a prize. And part of the prize, the details, he had to go off and do a portfolio of drawings. Macintosh, the following year, chose to travel to Italy. And he started at the south of Italy and travelled up through Italy over four months to the north of Italy. These are two watercolours that Macintosh did. He had a tendency that he would do his sketchbook, he would do drawings in pencil. And if he liked the detail, he would go back and paint a watercolour. These are two details from Orvieta Cathedral in Italy. Has anybody been to Orvieta? Yeah, it's a beautiful place, yes. So this is a building that fascinated Macintosh. I can understand the cathedral, the details of the entrance are maybe like some of the Scottish, what we call 
French chateaus, Scottish chateaus, with the sort of Linlithgow Palace and these types of buildings. Macintosh, at a young age, wasn't that in influenced by Florence. He thought Florence was money was thrown at Florence, and it was very much like a Christmas cake, uh, his views of the architecture of Florence. This is one of, believed to be one of the early symbolist paintings at Macintosh uh, painting. It's called Harvest Moon. And the detail, this is actually a segment of a poem from a friend of Macintosh who wrote the poem based on the actual uh, painting. I always loved to, um, when we show children these types of paintings, they're quite fascinated. They'll come out with all sorts of details within the painting. They'll see the detail. They'll think it's like a crocodile in the undergrowth uh, where it's actually a lady in the lake and the elements there. When Macintosh completed his architectural practice, he gave a lecture to his peers in Glasgow. And this detail you see there is part Macintosh did the program, the design of the program, and he was very much like that. He did attention to detail. And he was very, this is just a segment from his um, lecture. And really what he was trying to say, he was also very critical of the Greek and Roman architecture that had gone before in Scotland. He felt that Scotland had its own architectural heritage of castle and baronial style, and he wanted to take that forward in a modern context. So it's quite ironic that he won the, the Alexander Greek Thompson travelling studentship, and yet he was very, very critical of that type of architecture that had gone before. 1893 to 1906, you start to see Macintosh develop within the practice of Honeyman and Kepi as an architect. And this is very much an industrial building, the Glasgow Herald, uh, which still exists in Glasgow. Macintosh worked predominantly on the water tower area and a lot of the details and these lovely motifs that you see the detail on the, to the right. And he liked to kind of create this element of, sometimes it was like the seed, plant, or he was planting the seed as well. And all of his buildings in some form have, uh, the, the bird appears in all of his buildings in some form, um, the actual water tower was an early form of uh, fire protection. It had sluices, so if there was a fire in the main presses, somebody would open the sluices and the water would come down to put the fire out. Luckily, it's never, it was never required. In 1999, um, the Glasgow Herald Building uh, became the Lighthouse, which is Scotland's Centre for Architecture Design in the city. If you've maybe seen newspapers recently, it's actually... Currently within the receivers, it's uh, had some financial problems just now. We're hoping that this gets resolved. And within the building, there's a Macintosh Interpretation Centre. It's quite a fascinating uh, building as well. Martyrs Public School is really the building, how the society came into being. In the late 60s, early 70s, when Glasgow was building its new motorway, uh, they planned to demolish Martyrs and build the slip road of the motorway right through it. And there was a, a very much... It actually had come under um, the demolition order and a petition went to the Secretary of State and that was overturned and the building was protected. So it's, it still exists today. This is how it looks interior-wise. It's a beautiful building. There's a, a primary school just next door, which is very much 1960s. And I know what uh, Prince Charles would say, what it was like in comparison to this building. We, you're seeing Macintosh very much using light and space. You start to see a Japanese influence come into his work, and again at that period of time, pre-people like, like Quistler, um, 
Japan was opening out more. Glasgow was very much the second city of the empire. It was very much the industrial heart of the empire. It was a shipbuilding capital of the world. It was very much a, an industrial, hard-hitting city, but very much trading with your China, India, and Japan in details. We also know there was an engineer who was based in Japan and was sending students from Japan to learn their trade in Glasgow. But you're seeing the lovely use of light and the beam trusses at the very top. It's got that Japanese influence. They wouldn't be allowed to do that now in, in health and safety in case children threw themselves over the balcony and things like this. So. This is quite an imposing figure. This is the uh, director of the School of Art, Francis Newbury. He had come from London. He had a great knowledge of the arts and crafts movement in London. He wanted to make the Glasgow School of Art one of the best schools in the world. He had very much a great affinity with the students. He very much was great support and very much allowed them a lot of leeway in the work that they were doing. This is an early photograph of a lot of the women students. And again, you're into that sort of pre-suffragette movement where very few women had professional jobs in that period of time. The, the three, women, three people that I've highlighted in the, the photograph, the one in the middle is Margaret MacDonald, who became Macintosh's wife. Uh, the one on the right is Frances MacDonald, her sister, and the, other, the gentleman on the right is um, Frances Newbury. And there's quite a lot of ladies that are in this picture who would later be known as the Glasgow Girls, which was quite a strong uh, artist movement, very much in parallel with the Glasgow Boys. One of Macintosh's close friends was Herbert McNair, who had very much similar view and ideas on architecture and design and wanted to create this linear design aspects. At the school, Margaret and Frances MacDonald, two English ladies, very well educated, highly intelligent, very much caught the eye of Herbert and Charles, and they very much had a, a kind of great relationship that built over a period of time with their work. They became known as the Glasgow Four, which really in turn became the Glasgow style. This is a poster designed by Macintosh, very much in the Aubrey uh, Beardsley style. A uh, great English artist, uh, very much somebody that possibly Macintosh was influenced by at a young age. And this is just a phrase from Gleason White, who was one of the first directors of the studio, which was an influential magazine. And sort of late 1800s was being shown in, in Vienna, was very much showing, transcending the work of what was going on in Glasgow. This is a, a painting that um, I find a fascinating painting. It's, it's by Frances MacDonald. And I try and show some of their work in, in a core aspect. She also designed the frame. And it's from a, a poem by Tennyson called The Daydream. And what they had a tendency to do is they would transfer poetry and bring it to life in painting. And she would also designed the framework, the metal framework, where you're seeing the lovely spider's web in the corner and the details there. Another, there's an interesting thing about this painting, and I'll just plant a little seed and maybe see if you come back to that, was did this drawing influence Gustav Klintz, who'd later draw his women clothed in highly patterned dresses? I'll come back to that as well. 1896 was classed as the height of Glasgow style, really the sort of the peak of it. These are two posters that um, 
are quite interesting. The one on the left is designed by three. Although they were called the four, Macintosh very much was a loner. He, didn't, he did his own thing. Uh, Macintosh doesn't fit into any genre quite very easily. The one on the left has signatures of the, the other three. And again, you're getting a style which the girls were nicknamed when they were exhibiting called the Spook School. Uh, they were getting this nickname from London when they exhibited in London. And the one on the right is by Macintosh, which um, you, you're seeing elements of the birds and the, some of the Scottish colours and these totem poles and details with some of the symbolism. And the other interesting thing, you can, you can try and analyse Macintosh, but you'll never come to a conclusion. This is a portrait of Margaret. Um, she was a very powerful lady, very much viewed herself on level pegging with the men. Um, she had auburn hair, uh, so she's quite striking. This is believed, the painting on the right is believed to be the nearest that Macintosh did a portrait of Margaret. It's called Part Scene, Imagine Part. Uh, you're seeing the tendrils of the plants. There's an element there that she's wearing a kimono and you're seeing the tendrils going up, and you only start to see the body shape above waist height as though Macintosh sees her, but he doesn't see all her sexuality. This is another lovely painting by uh, Francis MacDonald called Spring. This was on linen. It was part of an exhibition a few years ago at the Hunterian that then went to the Walker Gallery in Liverpool called Doves and Dreams, and there's a work of Herbert Rainier and Francis MacDonald. Put these two paintings together, I find them quite interesting because a lot of people don't know Macintosh the artist. Uh, these are two paintings by Macintosh. The one on the left, they're a year apart when he painted these. Uh, the first one's in 1897, it's called In Fairyland, and it's very much the lady with all the flowers. It's very much, you could fit in in the 1960s with flower power and the hippie elements of it. And the one on the right is a year later called Fairies, and it's very much ethereal, it's nearly sort of dreamscape elements about him. 1896, Honeyman Kepi entered the competition to design the new Glasgow School of Art, and Macintosh was chosen to do the drawings for it. All the architects who entered the competition realised they, they didn't have the funds to build the whole school in one stage. And it would, they would have to have more funds to build the second stage. The school governors agreed that, and... The east wing was built as the first phase. The, the detail on the right there, you're seeing the north face of the School of Art, and these are all studio windows. Uh, very much artists prefer the northern light. You're having an artist designing a school for artists. Uh, the Glasgow School of Art, in the last few years, did an audit of the whole campus, and there was only one building that was fit for purpose in the campus, and that was the Glasgow School of Art, the Macintosh building. Um, all the 1960s and the more recent buildings are not, not classed as fit for purpose. Uh, there currently, you might have heard, there's a competition to design a new building across from the School of Art, and the American architects won this project, so I haven't seen any details and drawings. But I know recently the RIB did a competition, Sterling, to see which was the best designed building uh, by a British architect in the last 125 years, and the School of Art came out number one. This is just a facade of the, the whole front elevation. It's just the entrance. We are seeing Macintosh playing with Scottish vernacular, married to a modern style as well, where he's, he's moving forward in elements of the design of the building. This is the director's 
room, which is bleached with the first white room that Macintosh designed. And again, you were in a Victorian period where it was clutter, furniture was dark, um, very polluted as well. But this is a furniture where Macintosh is starting to look at rooms very holistically. This was the, originally it was designed as a boardroom, but the governors felt it was too feminine and it became another studio. It's now used as a meeting room. A lot of the furniture that's in there is very much um, comes from other buildings like Windy Hill and elements there. The lovely baronial fireplace is interesting. Macintosh designs a fireplace. He declutters it from start. You can't actually put any knickknacks on it. You can't actually add any of your... So you're not, he's not allowing you to clutter it, you know. This is the library, which is an amazing space. I mean, Macintosh works with, like, nature. So this has maybe been, like, in a wooden enclave and is using some... Um, people view Macintosh designed it in four dimensions and, and light was one of the dimensions that he uses to great effect when he's in, in full mode and he's very much clever how he uses light. And this is just a detail of the west facade where Macintosh is marrying metal against the detail of the building. Again, it's very modern. It's interesting seeing Macintosh's original drawings uh, in 1896 against the new building, which was 10 years later, and you're seeing Macintosh evolve. And I was chatting before the meeting about Macintosh doesn't fit easily into kind of categorising things, and he predates Art Deco as well, which is quite interesting. This is the Macintosh Church, which was originally Queen's Cross, where Macintosh plays with uh, the Gothic form. He, he spent a lot of time in sketching trips to various parts of England. Again, Italy would have been a great... Um, the details from Italy would have been very much a way of a great foundation to create his own style. And again, Macintosh, with, with the Gothic revival going on within England, these are sort of things that moved... This detail on the right is above the main door. and It's about one of the only details that I would view. This is very much in... Uh, you could relate to Gaudi, who's a contemporary of Macintosh. And you can see there's some similarities here. This is how the church looks today. It's very unusual for a Scottish church. It doesn't have a big uh, tower. It's very much based on... The tower's detail comes from a church in Marriott in Somerset, where Macintosh had, ske had sketched in 1895, and he's modelled the tower to hold the building together from Marriott in Somerset. Uh, and I think he would have liked the kind of the squatty, the Norman architecture of the West Country. It would have tied in with some of the things that he believed in, some of his strong views. And again, people like, like Frank Lloyd Wright, Macintosh viewed that buildings should be harmonious to their surroundings, and it would have been interesting what he thinks today with some of the architecture that goes up. This is how the building looks inside, where Macintosh uses space uh, to great effect. He marries a lot of eclectic elements together, but they all work. He's got pre-Reformation English. He has perpendicular Gothic. He has Japanese detail, which the side gallery is believed to be based on a Japanese inn. Detail, Blue Heart Window. It's very much his... He's uh, de-religious, so not put any religious details in the church. It was originally commissioned by the Free Church, and they generally like things to be very plain, and they would have not put an awful lot of details 
uh, within the church, although Macintosh seems to have broke out of that, which is, is quite interesting. The pulpit has this carving, which is repeated five times, which is as the bird's wings coming down, protecting the young seedlings coming up. And this could be an interpretation of the parable of the sower, because the mother church commissioned the project was St. Matthew's. Uh, you have the lovely oval shape there. The, the pulpit looks as though it's actually taken root and it's growing out of the floor. It was Bennett's furnishings made this to Macintosh design. It cost £25 to make, yeah, so I don't think it would cost that today. There's just a detail of the root beam uh, looking up on the church with some of the detail. And this is going into the hall where Macintosh plays with the lovely beam trusses, again, this Japanese influence. From the floor, these look like tree motifs, but when you're up close, it could be an insect um, of form. Macintosh also plays with the birds and the bee within the detail of the collection dish within the church. And this is another minor work. It was actually a missionary hall, which is just up quite close to where Queen's Cross Church is, but uh, Macintosh would have this was built at a similar time. And you just some details of the doors where Macintosh plays with a lovely sort of stained glass. And you have the kind of baronial style going through to the back of the church. 1900 was a, a good year. It um, was a year that Charles and Margaret married. Um, they delayed their honeymoon. They had been invited to the 8th exhibition of the Vienna Secession um, uh, in November. So they delayed going out in November. So both Macintoshes and the McNairs uh, went out to set up their exhibition in Vienna. Um, this is the exhibit, the room that they designed in Vienna. There's been there's all sorts of myths that develop around Macintosh. There's been stories that when they arrived in Vienna, they were met by the students and pulled through the streets in an open carriage, and flowers were thrown on on them. And they very much were viewed. Macintosh was viewed very high esteem by the Vienna Secession movement. This is a comment by Joseph Hoffman on Macintosh. Hoffman also viewed Macintosh as his spiritual brother, and I think they very much had such a high regard for Macintosh. When Macintosh came back from Vienna, he was commissioned to design a new house for a Glasgow businessman, William Davidson, and this house is called Windy Hill, and it's in Kilmacombe. It's always been in public, uh, private hands, and it's Quite interesting, you see the lovely chimney detail there, which is very much a very reminiscent of Voise, who, who is a, another great arts and crafts architect. This is how the hall looks today in Windy Hill. It's quite amazing the way Macintosh can design fireplaces. He sort of keeps them very simple, but they're, they're, they're sort of timeless. There are some aspects of Macintosh's work that it's very, very difficult to put dates on them with, with some aspects of it. This is a, an interesting, we call this the Macintosh motto card, and it's very sort of rusky in, in its sort of phraseology, and it's actually by a person called J.D. Seddon, and it's, if you can, it says, there is hope in honest error, 
none in the icy perfections of the mere stylist. And Macintosh had added the word icy to, to the phrase. This is quite an unusual building, the Daily Record building. It's, it's in a, a lane which is only 18 foot wide. Glasgow's not very good at dealing with lanes, not like Barcelona. Um, this was, Macintosh has used a white glazed brick. He's created the tree of life uh, in the stonework going up this building. This is a building that's always had a, a bit of an issue on its future use. Currently there's a cafe in the bottom, but we're hoping the developers will do other things to inside of the building. Macintosh becomes a partner in the practice. John Honeyman was easing back, and Macintosh was very much the rising star in getting a lot of plaudits, especially from, from abroad. I mentioned that Macintosh likes sketching. One of the places, his favourite places, uh, was, is Lindisfarne. And we've got no record that Macintosh met Lutchens, who remodelled uh, the castle. And you have the Jico Garden uh, looking across there. But Macintosh did an awful lot of, uh, sort of semi-architectural drawings and then a lot of plant drawings all round the castle. He did about four trips there. It's quite interesting that Enrique Morales, who designed the Scottish Parliament building, was a big Macintosh fan, and he used influences from Lindisfarne as part of the design for the Scottish Parliament building. With Macintosh's reputation in Austria and Germany, he was then invited to enter a competition to design a house on Atlaver. Macintosh didn't complete the entry in time, was disqualified, but he his entry uh, won all kinds of merit in the various elements he did. From the, the portfolio that Macintosh did, a civil engineer by the name of Graham Roxburgh had the idea of building the house based on this portfolio. And he started this in 1988, and it was completed in 1996 after a lot of hassles and elements. And I think the interesting thing, you have to treat it as a research project because... A hundred years after Macintosh, a lot of the craftsmen has disappeared. The house is very much more a uh, commercial concern. It's very popular for weddings. I think they have three weddings a week within the house. This is details of Macintosh's portfolio. This is the, the dining room, and this is how the dining room looks today with a lovely modern context. I always wonder when we've got these lovely light bulbs and things in, what we're going to do with this having been pushed to this horrible form of these new, new form light bulbs that we have that don't fit into old houses and stylish houses, you know. This is the, the music room where it's quite interesting. You get these doors and they open up, Macintosh there, and then you have that's how it looks today. And it's amazing when you see it set up for a wedding. It looks quite stunning. It's just a detail of, over the fireplace. Just thought I would drop in a Clint image, um, just to sort of cross. So, 1902, um, was, Macintosh was very, very busy in 1902. Uh, between, he was also invited to design a room for Karl Wandoffer, who was very much part of the Vienna Secession movement and the Wiener Werkstatt with Clint and Hoffman. And this is the room that the Macintosh has designed for. Uh, warned off her. Hoffman did a room as well and there was a number of other architects did the room uh, when I think it was 1914 these rooms were all taken apart when 
warned off her had had uh, left this house and um, various parts of it had been transferred to different form. There's a gesso frieze that Margaret did for for the room, which is now in the MAC in Vienna. If you're ever in Vienna, it's worth seeing. It's 19 and a half feet long by five feet. This is just some details of the gesso. And I know that Clint was bowled over with this, the gesso work. Gesso goes back to Egyptian time. It's very much you're working on a Hessian backcloth and you start building up layers of um, plaster and then the, the lines are done a bit like when you're baking when they're that semi-dry and semi-precious stones come in. So you get quite a lot of relief in, your, in the form and the shape within that, but quite stunning. And I think you can see on the right some of these types of influences. 1902, they exhibited in Turin, and uh, it's believed that Macintosh designed these banners on site. He didn't like the entrance and thought it was a bit bland, and he designed these banners in situ. Again, these are parts of the Rose Boudoir room that they designed. We get the lovely detail with the stained glass, and that's another gesso uh, by Margaret. Macintosh was close friends to the chief designer of Blackie Publishing, and the chief designer is a name called Talwin Morris, who some of you might know or have collected some of his book covers, which are very collectible, a fantastic wave of typography. Talby Morris recommended Macintosh design the house for the new house that Walter Blackie was looking at having built in Helensburg. And a lot of businessmen were looking at moving out of Glasgow because it was polluted, because the trains had opened up, better train service, and Macintosh uh, was commissioned to design this house in Helensburg. And very much what Macintosh has done in this house, the Blackie books were predominantly on children's stories and he's created a children's fantasy in the house. This is coming into the main hall and it's like coming into the enchanted forest. Macintosh has designed the total room, uh, the furniture, the wall coverings, the carpet, the lights are all his designs. And again, it's been amazing to see these lights originally in gas with that lovely blue flickering flame that added to the atmosphere of coming into the room. And you go from the enchanted forest into the silver glade, which is a lounge, area and this is like where the room's coming into the garden's coming into the room and the room's going into the garden and this piece of furniture is, takes on a life form during the day from the light uh, and the shadows going through it. Margaret would have done a lot of the embroidery, she did work in metal work as well within the room. She got on better with Mrs Blackie uh, than, Ch- than Charles did. This is just detail of the lampshade. And again, this is the toast room. You wouldn't have hung art on the walls. Macintosh viewed this very much like the Japanese, where they bring out your portfolio and you look at your art uh, rather than hanging it on the wall. This is a detail of... A few years ago, came in a, in a series of paintings that were coming up for sale. And we believe this was a painting to show the client what the, the actual gesso overmantle would look like. <coughs> And that's the gesso over mantle over the fireplace in the main room. And in 2003, the city bought this writing desk back to Glasgow. Um, it had gone, it's been on sale in the 1990s. The Musée d'Orsay tried to buy it then, couldn't buy it. It had gone too price, uh, too expensive. So the city, this is their last opportunity to buy this writing desk. 
This is Mrs. Blackie's bedroom, which is quite stunning. People like Terence Conran are big fans of Macintosh. I think you can see that in some of the early, even more recent habitat aspects. So just details of it. And the ladder back chair, which is quite a famous Macintosh chair. It's not a full-size chair. What Macintosh is doing there is he's using the, the chair to act as a trellis for the roses to climb up on the wall. So it's acting as a part of installation within the room. In 1896 to 1917, you see Macintosh's biggest client, a lady called Kate Cranson, who was a very clever businesswoman, very much part of the temperance movement, uh, wanted to create art tea rooms for business ladies to keep them safe from uh, drunken Glaswegian men. And uh, another architect that worked with her originally um, before Macintosh uh, came in was an architect called George Walton, and he did a lot of the furniture in the Buchanan Street tree rooms. Macintosh was commissioned to do the mural right along the wall of the Buchanan Street tea rooms. And again, it's quite interesting. It's, you've seen that painting earlier of Margaret with the part scene. That's just a detail of part of the, the room. So I wonder what she thought, having herself blazoned on the tea room. The Gyle Street uh, tea room, this is a, a famous chair. This is one of the most iconic pieces of Macintosh furniture, the Argyle chair. I think the last one it sold at auction was 300,000. Um, you'll see these in lots of films. They appear in Blade Runner, Star Trek. Uh, Stephen Polyakov uh, plays. Um, he uses it as a, a way that you've reached your pinnacle when you go into this room of Macintosh furniture. So he's using it as a social statement. This is the ladies' luncheon room as part of the Ingram Street tea room. This was reconstructed as part of the 1996 Macintosh exhibition, which then toured USA, uh, New York, Chicago, and Los Angeles. This is now, you'll be able to see this in Kelvin Grove, parts of this room. These are details of the gessos, of overmantles. Again, these are paintings. The top one's called the Wazzle, and the bottom one is the May Queen. The top one's by Macintosh, the bottom one's by Margaret. And these are rep representing the pagan seasons. And this is the, the last major tea room that Macintosh worked on was, is the Willow Tea Room, which exists today in its uh, various forms after it's gone through, become a, a department store and changed. And what you have here is these pieces of chair, these chairs are silver, so Macintosh is emphasising the, the willows and you're having the glass reflecting round to add to the atmosphere in the room. And Sucky Hall Street, which the Willow Tea Room is on, is an old Scottish word for Street of Willows. This is a postcard I bought on eBay not too long ago. It was actually from a New Zealander who was serving the forces in the First World War, writing back to his family uh, back in New Zealand. And it's interesting, you can see the Willow Tea Room there, and it must have looked so, so modern in that Victorian setting in Sucky Hall Street during that sort of First World War phase. And by the time Macintosh was doing the designs for the Willow Tea Room, he had, was given complete freedom, practically anything that moved he could design, and Macintosh designed the aprons for the waitresses for the, for the actual tea room. This is just how the tea room looks today. 
this is a gesso on the left by Margaret. These two designs are by Margaret. Um, the one on the left is called Oh Ye, Oh Ye, Willow Woods, and it's based on a poem by Gabriel Dante Rossetti, um, who you were, maybe if you watched some of the programmes that were run recently on the Brotherhood. Uh, this is one of her best gessos. It's a stunning gesso. It's in Kelvin Grove, this gesso now. And this is a menu card that um, Margaret designed for... It was called the White Cockade, and it was a tea room that Kate Cranston had in one of the major exhibitions that was on in Glasgow. And this la the ladies used today in the, the menu cards uh, currently of the actual Willow Tea Room. That's how the facade looks today. The floor, lower floor, which was the jewellers, would have been the lower tea room, and the top floor would originally have been the billiards room. So there was some place for the men to go to. So. And I would say that uh, Kate Cranston was very much Macintosh's kind of favourite client. I think he had such a great respect for it. He gave her her best work, and it's believed that the interior designs he did for the Hoose Hill and Nitz Hill were her, his Macintosh's best interior designs. These are scattered all around the world, these rooms that are in... The, I think the Musée Dorsey has the bedrooms from Hoose Hill... Um, Virginia Museum has elements uh, that are scattered all over the world and this lovely uh, washstand is in the Met in New York this is just an uh, interior design from, from the room I had a girl who was studying at Virginia uh, uh, who did a, a, a thesis on, on the music room within the Hussle, which is quite a fascinating insight and in her trying to unravel what the room looked like and what was going on within the room. The last major project that Macintosh worked on in Glasgow was Scotland Street School, which is a large major public building. And this is how the school looks today, where it was for the school board. Macintosh got into all kinds of issues with the school he had. They were starting to get tighter on various things. He wanted to originally design a school in white sandstone, but they said that would cost more. Uh, there was a lot of wrangling about some interiors. Macintosh wanted to make this school very stimulating for the children and an area where they could leave the school and very much their senses had been stimulated. Uh, but he had to compromise with the school board. And he, ex he actually had one set of plans for the school board and one set of plans for the planning department, and he hoped they, won't, they wouldn't talk to each other. Yeah. <laughs> And they did, and they summoned Macintosh for a meeting. He went off on a sketching holiday and sent some poor person from the office to face the music. Yeah. This is just the interior where you see Macintosh still moving forward with the lovely detail in the glass, which you could see some aspects of the Frank Lloyd Wright uh, details from uh, the Darwin Martin House in Buffalo. And Macintosh has designed their own interior house. They moved into this house in 1906, which is now parked of the Hunterian Art Gallery. And they really just uh, did a total interior job on this house. Uh, this is the dining room, where I talked about Macintosh and nature. You're very much down on the tree level. You're, it's very earthy, the colours. Um, Macintosh designed the wallpaper, which has uh, roses and teardrops and details there. Then you go up to 
study lounge area. You've moved up a bit. It's become very ethereal. It could be a New York loft apartment today. But they're interesting. We hear correspondence and people that arrived in this house in 1906. Nothing they'd thought they'd gone to some other worlds, you know, compared to walking into another Victorian house. It must have been a, a revelation. This is a comment by Herman Matthias, who was a great, became a great friend of Macintosh. Macintosh became a godfather to one of his children, but he very much viewed Macintosh at such a high level. This is just some details from the lounge area of the furniture. And you get Macintosh, when he had the writing cabinet made for Blackie, he had a writing cabinet made for himself. And then says, you've gone to the bedroom, which is paying homage to a couple who were in love. Uh, we have the lovely doves and elements, and you've reached the treetops. It's become very, very ethereal. Um, it's just a, a stunning setting, you know. I mean, they were very much a couple that were very hardly separated throughout their life. Between 1906 and this sort of period, Macintosh generally just became a job architect. He didn't have the commissions that he was hoping, again, there was 1906, the Liberal Party came in, there was changes, social reform. It wasn't really the, kind of, the element of the kind of atmosphere for that, and he was um, uh, really struggling. He resigned from the practice, tried to set up his own practice, but couldn't do anything. So Margaret winged him off to Warburswick in Suffolk, and... Really, to recharge his batteries, uh, there's some views that Macintosh possibly had a breakdown uh, at the time in Margaret. They'd been to Warburswick before. Francis Newby had a holiday home there, and Macintosh had sketched there. It's believed there was possibly a commission to do book illustrations of uh, watercolours. This is Larkspur, and this is Willow Herb, and these are all lovely botanic um, paintings that Macintosh did in Warburswick. Warburswick's hardly changed, even today, from the days that Macintosh was there. Uh, Macintosh was a loner. He, uh, the locals thought that he was signalling new boats when he was going out on the beach on his own. He must have been getting correspondence from Austria and Germany, and they thought that uh, he was signalling the U-boats, and they got arrested um, uh, because they thought he was a spy. And uh, he was told to leave. This is a, a fantastic painting, which is very much fritillaria, which uh, I don't know whether it's art imitating nature or nature imitating art, but it's a, the sort of the right painting for Macintosh. And they moved to Chelsea, where Macintosh tried to resurrect his architectural career. And again, there was huge limitations um, within Chelsea at, during that period. And um, Macintosh did a whole series of textile designs uh, to keep the sort of wolves at bay. And uh, there's still quite a number of these textile designs around today. The one on the left is tulip and lattice. The one on the right is stylized tulips. And again, they're so rich, the colours, you know, the elements there, they're so vibrant. And during his time in London, he was commissioned by Bassett Lokber, not sure where Bassett Locke had heard of Macintosh, and it could have been from Germany, because Bassett Locke had a lot of um, business dealings in Germany, and he wanted Macintosh to redesign his house in Derngate. Macintosh never went to Northampton. It was all done by correspondence. We believe that Bassett Locke was colourblind, 
which influenced some of the colours and designs. This is the spare bedroom, which has got a blue, very rich, very strong colour, and there was an interesting time there. I think George Bernard Shaw stayed there, and they asked him in the morning, did he sleep okay? And he says, yes, he always slept with his eyes shut. You know? <laughs> and this is the, the lounge study area, and you're just walking straight off the street into this room, so you're just still seeing Macintosh at the height of his um, design aspect here. You know, with a very kind of modern, very, very art deco in, in style. It's believed even Macintosh left that Bassett Locke was looking for him um, to design his new house, which is New Ways, which became really one of the first modern houses in the UK. Macintosh designed the Christmas card for the Bassett Locks, which ties in everything about Bassett Locke, about trains, sailing uh, in that form. So. By that time, Macintosh had give, given up any hope of recreating his, his uh, architectural practice. Margaret wasn't keeping well. She struggled from, from breathing, from, from asthma, and they moved to Port Vendre in the south of France, which is very close to the Spanish border, and it's a Catalan-speaking part of France. This painting is called The Southern Port. And Macintosh did a series of paintings all around this area, and he intended to have an exhibition at the Leicester Gallery in London as part of this exhibition. This is the hotel they stayed in called the Hotel de Commerce, which is actually very close to the, the, the port front. They, they, they spent their winters in Port Vendre, and they spent their summers in Mont-Louis in the mountains, uh, and they travelled up in the train uh, to, to that. Macintosh painted in a variety of locations around there. This was one of Macintosh's favourite. Uh, well, he viewed it as his best Mediterranean wa watercolour. Uh, there has been comments what uh, Salvador Dali had said that he felt Macintosh was a more accomplished artist than Cezanne, so I'll add in some controversy there. Um, but Macintosh always just painted in watercolours. Everybody goes to Collier to paint the blue, whether it's Picasso, Dali. Uh, this is Macintosh's interpretation of the blue, and this was bought recently by the Chicago Art Institute. This is about one of the most powerful paintings by Macintosh called La Rue de Salel. Again, it's round the Port Vendre uh, harbour area, and Macintosh tended to spend about three weeks painting these watercolours. They're not just straight uh, landscapes. There are more to them. I mean, here you could view, is Macintosh thinking ahead? Is, is this, are these buildings, is this the roots or is these skyscrapers you're seeing? Yeah, this is elements that you're starting to. Macintosh smoked a pipe and... He, this time Margaret wasn't, she was getting treatment in London and there was letters going back and forward between Charles and Margaret and he was concerned about Margaret and he was painting this uh, called The Rocks and he said to Margaret, um, he was complaining of the tobacco and he was blaming the Americans for their commercialisation. He thought they were influencing tobacco but this was the first signs of cancer and Macintosh didn't know it. So he was worried about Margaret and it was... Uh, he was a person that was ill. So this was the last painting that Macintosh painted. Uh, and he went back to London and Macintosh died the following year in London. And this is the obituary 
in the Times in London or in Macintosh. It's believed that Margaret went back to Port Vondra and scattered Macintosh's ashes in Port Vondra. We haven't got anything totally, but that's what she went back twice to Port Vondra. Um, that's it. But that gives you, I hope that gives you some flavour of Macintosh, and uh, hope you enjoyed that.